Hello, and welcome to A History of Jazz, a podcast dedicated to exploring jazz history one record at a time. I'm your host, Arik Devins. Today, we'll be looking at the life of perhaps the most important early jazz conductor, a man named James Reese Europe, as well as hearing some of the music his band recorded in 1919. Now, Europe was born in Mobile, Alabama on February 22nd, 1880, and his father had been born a slave. But after the Civil War, he became a civil servant under the model of Republican patronage. In 1889, the family moved to Washington, D.C., where his father accepted a position in the National Postal Service under President Benjamin Harrison. His son, James Reese Europe, learned to play the violin from Enrico Hurley, the assistant director of the U.S. Marine Band. By 14, he came in second in a citywide music competition, which his sister, Mary, won. By 1899, when he was 19, his father died, which left the family to support themselves, and by 1902, he had moved to New York City to support himself as a violinist, mandolin player, and pianist. Okay, so before we get further into the story, let's hear our first selection from the music that he recorded with his band in 1919, and this is a song called St. Louis Blues. His career didn't take off right away. He worked his way into respect in the industry in New York. By the fall of 1904, two years after he had moved there, he was hired as a conductor for a musical called A Trip to Africa, which completely bombed. The Freeman, a New York City paper, said of the music, The orchestra was vile. Cues were not taken up fast enough by the director. But by 1907, he was back with another musical this time a comedy called The Black Politician, and this time the free man said, James Reese Europe, whose reputation has not yet quite caught up with the length of his name, is accredited as composer of all the music. He's leader of the orchestra, and a very good one. His music gives evidence that he possesses more ability as a composer than he has hitherto been given a chance to exhibit, and we will look forth encouragingly for what his demand may create in the future. And by the following year, 1908, he was with another show called The Red Moon, and finally, the Freeman said of this performance, James Reese Europe, musical director and composer of some of the music of the show, handled the orchestra and the chorus in a masterly way. He worked every minute he was in the pit and between the acts. The show has 21 big numbers and everyone takes two or more encores. The musical director in the big league has to work these days. All right, another song now from 1919. This one's called How You Gonna Keep Them Down on the Farm. Thank you. 
So by this point, Europe had been in the industry for quite a few years, and during his time, he had noticed how disorganized and exploited African-American musicians were. The European-American Musicians Union ignored them completely, and the influential theatrical societies were completely segregated. As a result, if an African-American musician could get work at all, they worked for minimum wages, and in the worst possible conditions. There had been previous attempts to do something about it, but none of the previous organizations included a central booking agency, which would help promote a unified interest. In 1910, Europe launched a new organization called the Clef Club. Europe was its first president, and its first vice president was a man we talked about in our last episode, Dan Kildare of Ciro's Orchestra. The first thing that they did was to make a hundred-person orchestra to showcase the talent they had available and organized a successful debut concert. They also set up a musician's hotline and began to provide orchestras for clubs and private parties. Europe conducted many of these orchestras himself. As Yubi Blake, an artist we'll hear about on our grab bag show for the year, described, Europe was a big, tall man, very commanding, stood up straight like a West Point soldier. He knew his music, studied arranging and conducting at Columbia. We all called him Jim, very flexible. At home or in the White House, it was all the same to him. You couldn't make him mad, and he had a brain. My God, he could see around corners. He could always figure out what was going to happen and be prepared for it. He knew how to make a plan and stick to it. Play? Well, he used to sit at a piano and hold a violin. I was the assistant conductor, and Jim used to hand me the baton almost every number after he started it off. Then he'd go mingle with the people. Now, the white bands all had their music stands, see? But the people wanted to believe that Negroes couldn't learn to read music, but had a natural talent for it. So we never played with no music. Now, this is the truth. Europe's orchestra was filled with reading sharks. That cornet player, Russell Smith, if a fly landed on the music, he'd play it. See? Like that. But we weren't supposed to read music. All the high-toned, big-time folks would say, Isn't it wonderful how these untrained, primitive musicians can pick up all the latest songs instantly without being able to read music? By 1912, the Clef Club played at Carnegie Hall, which was unheard of at that time for an African-American orchestra that played popular music. It even attracted resistance from the African-American community, notably composer Will Marion Cook, who claimed that Europe knew nothing about conducting and that the project would set the Negro race back 50 years. He initially refused to participate, but joined at the last minute when he sat in with the orchestra on his violin. The concert was a huge success. Okay, let's hear another song from 1919. This one's called Arabian Nights. In the summer of 1913, Europe met superstar dancers Vernon and Irene Castle, who liked his musicianship and his personality, so much so that they hired him to be their impersonal conductor. 
Now, the castles were incredibly popular and incredibly modern. They had broken into show business the previous year as exhibition dancers at the fanciest clubs of Paris and New York. Basically, they were an attractive couple who would go to various parties and clubs and perform popular dances of the time. And they were an integrated dance company, which would not have been welcome in basically all of the south of the time, but the castles primarily played in the northeast and Europe. The fame of the castles is what led Victor to offer to record the band under the name Europe's Society Orchestra. And this appears to have been the first time an African-American orchestra was recorded by any major label in the United States. They recorded on December 29, 1913, with 12 musicians. And according to the ledgers from the sessions, it was five banjo mandolins, three violins, one clarinet, one cornet, one trap drum, and one piano, which was an extremely unusual setup for recording at the time, and it's impressive that the engineers at Victor were able to make it all work, given the limited technology they had, as we've discussed, this was the era of the big horn. The record sold quite well, but Europe didn't get a lot of publicity from Victor. They said nothing about him in their catalogs, they emphasized the castles primarily, and they printed no picture of him for the introductory flyers for his first two releases, even though they customarily did that for new artists. Okay, so before we move back to 1919 music, I want to play one of the tracks from that 1913 recording session, and it's called Too Much Mustard. It's a fast-paced turkey trot, which was a dance, that was a mainstay of the castle's repertoire. So this is the kind of thing you might hear if you saw Vernon and Irene Castle perform with James Reese Europe and the Society Orchestra. So here it is, Too Much Mustard. Another major moment in the history of music and racial integration happened in 1914. On January 12th, the New York Age reported, For the first time in the history of New York, theatergoers witnessed the unusual spectacle of a colored orchestra playing in the pit of a first-class theater for white artists. The scene was enacted at two houses in one afternoon, Hammerstein's Victoria Theater and the Palace Theater. Such an unusual condition was due to the insistence of Mr. and Mrs. Vernon Castle, known in the 400 as Society Dancers, that James Reese Europe's Society Orchestra play their dance music. Initially, the European-American musicians who normally played in the theaters were disdainful of what was happening. But when Europe's band received loud ovations and demands for encores, they insisted that the African-American men move onto the stage where they could be considered performers rather than a pit orchestra. And Europe and his band agreed. That same year in 1914, James Reese Europe gave two long newspaper interviews where he explained his thoughts about the future of African-American music. The first was in the New York Post, where he exclaimed a belief that his band should stick to its own type of music. He said, You see, we colored people have our own music that is part of us. It's us. It's the product of our souls. It's been created by the sufferings and miseries of our race. 
Some of the old melodies we played Wednesday night were made up by slaves of the old days, and others were handed down from the days before we left Africa. Our symphony orchestra never tries to play white folks' music. We should be foolish to attempt such a thing. We're no more fitted for that than a white orchestra is fitted to play our music. I know of no white man who has written Negro music that rings true. Indeed, how could such a thing be possible? How could a white man feel in his heart the music that a black man feels? There's a great deal of alleged Negro music by white composers, but it's not real. Even the Negro ragtime music of white composers falls far short of the genuine dance compositions of Negro musicians. Music breathes the spirit of a race, and, strictly speaking, it is a part only of the race which creates it. In another interview for the New York Tribune, he discussed the realities of working as an African-American band, saying, The Tempo Club, which was his follow-up to the Clef Club, he left the Clef Club under uh, unusual circumstances. He was dissatisfied with some of the politics and left and formed a different organization. The Tempo Club contains about 200 members, all musicians, and from this body I supply at present a majority of the orchestras which play in the various cafes of the city and also at the private dances. Our Negro musicians have nearly cleared the field of the so-called gypsy orchestras, yet we Negroes are under a great handicap. For the Castle Lame Duck Waltz, I receive only one cent a copy royalty and the phonographic royalties in like proportion. A white man would receive from six to twelve times the royalty I receive, and compositions far less popular than mine, but written by white men, gain for their composers vastly greater rewards. I have done my best to put a stop to this discrimination, but I have found that it was no use. The music world is controlled by a trust, and the Negro must submit to its demands or fail to have his compositions produced. I am not bitter about it. It is, after all, but a slight proportion of the price my race must pay in its at times almost hopeless fight for a place in the sun. Someday, it will be different, and justice will prevail. Europe toured with the castles until the first half of 1915, when Vernon, a patriotic Englishman, left to join the Royal Air Corps as a combat pilot. He survived more than a hundred missions behind German lines, only to be killed during a training mission near Fort Worth, Texas in 1918. Now let's hear another one of those 1919 songs. This one's called Indianola. Europe was approached by Colonel William Hayward, who was commander of a unit that was then called the 15th New York Infantry, to take over the regimental band. Now, the 15th was an all-African-American National Guard regiment under European-American officers, and they were having trouble recruiting. They thought that having a band with such a notable leader might help. By December, Europe was commissioned as a lieutenant and was one of the first African-American officers in the regiment. As I mentioned on a previous episode, the United States declared war on Germany on April 6, 1917, and by July 15th, the 15th Regiment had been called into active service. The unit was initially trained in South Carolina, but they encountered so much racial hatred there that they moved back to Long Island, 
where they unfortunately encountered even more racism, including a shooting incident with troops from Alabama. But by January 1918, they were in France, and by April they had been renamed the 369th Infantry, attached to the 4th French Army, and assigned a frontline position in the Argonne Forest. Europe ended up getting assigned to a machine gun company, and became the first African-American officer to lead troops into combat during the war. He was caught in a gas attack in June, but was back to being the bandmaster by August. Meanwhile, the 369th were so admired in battle that they were named the Hellfighters by the French. The band was the first to introduce jazz music to the French public. Up until that point, they'd been playing something that they would call ragtime, but as I mentioned in previous episodes, those terms were pretty fluid, and at this point, it was being referred to as jazz, got them a lot of notice both in France and back home. There were songs written about them in the United States, including the extremely awkwardly titled When the Good Lord Makes a Record of a Hero's Deed, He Draws No Color Line. By the time the war ended, the 369th Regiment were celebrated with a parade up New York City's Fifth Avenue, with the band playing as they marched towards Harlem. So let's hear another one of those 1919 songs now, and this one we've heard several times before. This is another version of the classic The Darktown Strutter's Ball. You can hear several previous versions that I've played from the original Dixieland Jazz Band and the Savoy Quartet in the Spotify playlist listed in the show notes. But now we're going to hear James Reese Europe and the Hellfighters Band's The Darktown Strutter's Ball. After the war ended, Europe immediately set out to make the most of his newly found fame. He organized a tour of the Hellfighters band, a series of concerts with variety show elements and music ranging from popular hits all the way to an early version of big band jazz. Now, it's important to note that the band that that Europe was touring around with wasn't orchestrated the same way as typical big band jazz, like it didn't have exactly the same instruments and they didn't play exactly the same parts, but this is the first time you get jazz in a large band setting. He also returned to the recording studio, this time for Pathé, to record all of the music we've listened to so far in this episode. The recordings were discussed in Phonograph and Talking Machine Weekly as a big scoop for Pathé. The article continued, Lieutenant Jim Europe, the Jazz King, and his famous 369th U.S. Infantry Hellfighters Band are now recording exclusively for Pathé Records, the music that put pep into our boys over there, who put pep into the war and settled it. This famous overseas band is now making a two-year triumphant tour of the country from Maine to California, playing every matinee and evening to packed houses in every city. Everybody's wild about the lively jazzing and syncopated rhythm, played as only Jim Europe's band can play it. When you hear the wonderful music, you can't sit still. Your head and shoulders have to sway. It's jazz as is, Lieutenant Noble Sissel, the finest colored tenor in America, and Creighton Thompson, popular colored baritone, two of the band's favorite soloists, are singing the latest ballads and song hits. The singing serenaders and the Hellfighters double quartet harmonize real southern jubilee songs. Talking Machine World wrote, Jim Europe is today, without doubt, 
the leading exponent of jazz music. So let's hear some of that music with Hesitating Blues. After recording the songs we've heard in this episode, Europe and the band headed to Boston for the next-to-last performance of their tour. He had been busy planning summer gigs for band members who wanted work, and a worldwide concert tour for the fall, including a return to France. They arrived in Boston on May 9th, played an afternoon show, and were invited by Governor and future President Calvin Coolidge to play a ceremony at the State House Steps the next morning. As the evening show began, Europe began to have issues with a drummer named Herbert Wright who would sometimes disrupt concerts with fits of giggling or by walking around on stage. Wright was an orphan who Europe had adopted and who was increasingly displaying erratic behavior. During the intermission, Europe attempted to talk to Wright in his dressing room, with another musician, Noble Sissel, there to witness what happened. The conversation was interrupted, and as Sissel led Wright out of the room, he rushed back in and pulled out a pocket knife, screaming, I'll kill anybody that takes advantage of me, Jim Europe, I'll kill you. As Sissel described it, the rest went like this. Jim backed up between the table and the wall and raised a chair in between himself and the menacing dwarf as he stood there in his distorted position, crouching as a ferocious animal preparing to lunge upon its victim. Jim Europe, standing six feet tall with a large chair between him and his attacker, was apparently safe from harm. We all hollered, Knock that knife out of his hand, Jim! Jim grasped the chair in an attitude as though he was about to carry out our warning, when all of a sudden there came over him some thought, God knows what, that caused him to completely relax his whole body and set the chair down. He was about to mutter, Herbert, get out of here, when to our amazement, before any of us could move from our track, like a panther, Herbert Wright hurled himself over the chair. As he came through the air, Jim clasped his body and whirled it away from him, but as the demon had made up his mind to carry out his murderous attack with a backhand blow, he made a wild swing of the knife, brought it down in the direction of Jim Europe's face. Wright fell, scrambling in the chair, and before he could regain his feet, I had grasped him by the shoulder. Quite unconscious as the rest of us were, that he had struck Jim Europe the blow immediately after I touched him, and as soon as I had spoken to him, he became as calm and quiet as a child. Initially, no one involved knew that the injury was serious. Europe's final words to Noble Sissel were, Sissel, don't forget to have the band down before the state house at nine in the morning. I'm going to the hospital, and I will have my wound dressed, and I will be at the commons in the morning in time to conduct the band. See that the rest of the program is gone through with. I leave everything for you to carry on. A few hours later, things turned for the worst. Sissel and other members of the band rushed to the hospital to potentially be blood donors for a transfusion. But it didn't matter. They were too late. James Reese Europe was dead at the age of 39. Let's hear another one of his songs now. This one's called Plantation Echoes. (laughs) ¶¶ 
Immediately following Europe's death, Herbert Wright was arrested and charged with murder. Doctors examined him for an insanity defense, but decided that he was mentally sound. They did determine him to be of such low type of mentality that there was a question as to his entire responsibility. He was ultimately sentenced to 10 to 15 years in Massachusetts State Penitentiary. Europe's funeral had an immense turnout. It was apparently the first ever public funeral for an African-American in New York City history. Deacon Johnson, who was then the president of the Clef Club, said, Before Jim Europe came to New York, the colored man knew nothing but Negro dances and porter's work. All that has been changed. Jim Europe was the living open sesame to the colored porters of this city. He took them from their porter's places and raised them to positions of importance as real musicians. I think the suffering public ought to know that in Jim Europe, the race has lost a leader, a benefactor, and a true friend. Europe's body was paraded through New York and eventually transported to Washington, D.C. and buried at Arlington National Military Cemetery. His death was widely reported, including in the New York Times, who had never wrote about him when he was still alive. With his death, the Hellfighters band fell apart, and record sales of the Pathé sessions dwindled rapidly. This was partly due to the death of Europe. Apparently, sales didn't survive that sort of thing in those days, but it was more likely that it was due to the special sapphire ball groove cut that Pathé used on their records, meaning you needed specially equipped machines to play them, which dramatically limited their sale potential. Interestingly, Victor didn't use the opportunity to re-release the records they had made in 1913 and 1914. And for a long time, Europe was mostly forgotten. Luckily for us, in more modern times, his position as an early proponent of jazz and an early conductor has been rediscovered. And in 1989, there was a recreation of Europe's 1912 Carnegie Hall Clef Club concert, which reproduced the event as closely as was possible. There were even appearances by a few members of Europe's band. We're going to end this time with a quote about Europe from one of his friends, and someone, as I mentioned, we'll hear more about as the show goes on, Yubi Blake. He said, People don't realize yet today what we lost when we lost Jim Europe. He was the savior of Negro musicians. He was in a class with Booker T. Washington and Martin Luther King. I met all three of them. Before Europe, Negro musicians were just like wandering minstrels. Play in a saloon and pass the hat and that's it. Before Jim, they weren't even supposed to be human beings. Jim Europe changed all that. He made a profession for us out of music. All of that we owe to Jim, if only people would realize it. Here's one more song from James Reese Europe, Memphis Blues. Before we go today, I want to make a quick announcement. Uh, The show will be going on a hiatus for the next several months. Uh, This is a combination of some travel I'm doing as well as mainly a need for me to do all of the research that goes into making this show. I try to be as exhaustive as possible with the books that I'm reading and the various sites that I'm sourcing so that I can present the most complete picture to all of you. 
Now I need a little bit of time to go back to those books and those sources and get things ready for the next stretch of episodes. The next episode will therefore come out sometime in the fall. I'm not exactly sure when, but I'll be announcing it on the Twitter account and on the Facebook group. So if you follow either of those, you'll see it. If not, it'll show up in your feed one day. I really appreciate all of the support. This has been incredibly gratifying so far, and I'm super excited to take the next step. And I'll uh, see all of you in a few months. Thank you. You can follow along with the show on Twitter at JazzHistoryPod, or check out the website at AHistoryOfJazz.com. Every episode, I'll be including a link to a Spotify playlist of all the songs we heard. You can subscribe in iTunes or Overcast or wherever great podcasts can be found. If you want to participate, please leave a rating or a review. You can follow me on Twitter at Daniel Tiger, and I hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you.